Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lecturally-based preaching resource designed to ask those provocative questions around whether or how politics should appear in our preaching this week. My name is Beth Alison Glenny and I'm a Baptist minister and I'm working for the Baptist Union as our public issues enabler. Each week I'm joined by a different guest from a different place and space on the political landscape. Today I'm very pleased to introduce the Reverend Dr Helen Painter, Director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence and Biblical Studies Tutor at Bristol Baptist College. She comes with a whole collection of master's degrees um, and a PhD in the Old Testament studies. Welcome Helen. Thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, politics in the pulpit, I just, um, I wonder if we could just start with kind of where you are, what you might think about that kind of, why why have you agreed to come on today? Um, <laughs> I have been accused of putting too much politics in the pulpit in the past. Um, um, I spend, as in my role as uh, director for the Centre for Study of Bible and Violence, I spend a lot of my time thinking about uh, violence, violence that is overt um, and violence that is structural and a whole range of, of types of violence within both of those categories. And I'm continually, I suppose my, my research area is how that intersects with scripture. Um, how scripture speaks to that, but also increasingly how I discover that um, scripture can be um, appropriated um, for the perpetuation of violence, for the justification of violence. So I'm, it's, 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 it's always the way, isn't it? Once you start looking for something, you see it everywhere. And so I'm, I'm continually now um, aware of power issues within the text, places where, you know, who do we hear, who don't we hear, um, whose voices are, are prominent, um, but also power issues, you know, so aware of the power of the pulpit, actually, and the power of, of the person who interprets scripture, um, and and the good and the bad um, power, uh, use of power in, in that context. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, even thinking about things like the Magnificat, which has been is a banned text in certain, or has been banned at certain times, and and thinking about violence and actually, does that flatten structures? Does that invert structures? Is there a danger of of inciting revolution? And what sort of revolution will that look? You know, these questions are kind of always buzzing around in my mind, and um, I'm also very sensitive to martial language these days in the pulpit um, and in hymns and so on. Um, and and I suppose frustrated by what I sometimes see as a kind of cognitive dissonance where we we kind of close our eyes and our ears to pain and suffering and and really important issues in our world and we fail to pray for them and we fail to address them um, and we fail to allow our congregations the opportunity to lament or to rage. Um, so yeah, all of these things kind of come into um, my engagement with the text when I'm, I'm thinking about preaching and when I'm putting a service together as well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's been a it's been a week. We've um, we're recording on Monday for anybody who's joining us on a on a, a Tuesday or news um, about uh, uh, experiencing kind of women's violence is kind of the real kind of topic haven't we um and and all that's um 
been going on with the Sarah Everard case. And I think that kind of, for me, kind of looking at the kind of the the kind of political shape, the kind of space that we might be preaching into this week. Um, and I'm really struck, um, I always think I measure news stories by how much they turn up in my friends chatting to me about things um not just because I work in a kind of political sphere I expect uh, I expect my colleagues to be always excited about these things but not necessarily to kind of it to register in in kind of um my kind of my rest of my life and it's when my friends are texting saying this is this is a thing isn't it this this matters this could have been me I lived near there and and that sense of um actual kind of connection with a new story that sometimes they have those kind of heartbeat moments and I think um these it's been a week of International Women's Day at one end Mothering Sunday on the other and and kind of all of those news stories about Megan um talking about institutional racism and then Sarah Everard's death and the kind of sense of actually not feeling safe at the moment and that that kind of violence in the pandemic world being quite a particular mm. powerful thing Mm. Um, one of the sorry no no carry on one, one of the things that I'm I mean I've noticed is the way that this tragic and, and just appalling case has caught the, the public imagination but there's an organization called Counting Dead Women um, which which does what it says it, it counts women who are murdered um, and who the chief suspect or you know down the line as someone is convicted who's convicted of that um, crime is male and um, since Sarah Everard went missing three women have been murdered three additional women have been murdered um, they are their names are Gatika Goyal, Imogen Bohajuk and Wenjing Shu and uh, only one of those names even crossed my um, radar as I was except when I went explicitly looking for them I notice that all of those women are um, at least of non-white extraction um, and I and I wonder it makes me wonder why certain appalling crimes catch the public imagination and others just just don't um, there's there's something called grievability. It's a concept um, coined by a, a scholar called Judith Butler, and she speaks about how the measure of a society is, or a, a way of evaluating a society is whose lives are grievable. Um, and it's absolutely right that we rage and grieve about what happened to, to Sarah. Um, but do we do that more because she was white, because she was middle class, because she was pretty, because she was young? Yeah, so I, I I noticed that. So those three names I read out were n numbers twenty nine, thirty, and thirty one this year. Yeah, yeah. I, I you can follow them on Twitter, can't you? If you mm. if you're on Twitter, um, and it's a bit of a heartbreaking entry into your Twitter feed, but it's there. Yeah. Um, I we've been we were talking about this at JPIT, um, in and kind of do we do we address this because it's a newsworthy story, or do you, um is to address this to perpetuate uh, that kind of grievability that you've mentioned. And um, I, uh, one of my colleagues pointed out that um, from just a quick bit of research, um, you're five times more likely to be murdered if you're from a black and minority ethnic background in this mm. country, which is just, I mean, says something, doesn't it? And we're, 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 we're sitting here as white women who have in our own way fought quite hard for our power in the pulpit, but but aware that, that, that our whiteness gives us a, a, a platform and a power and a, 
um, a privilege uh, that maybe others don't have. And yeah, it's re- it's a it is really um, it is a really tricky one. Why why that girl has particularly caught our attention, and is it a lot because she was she's very beautiful and and all of this kind of you know um, she she didn't look like somebody who should have been murdered, you know, because we put in you know blame on on victims and mm. goes there. Um, and there's obviously um, various things going through the news then that kind of also in politics um, this week. So the, the police crime sentencing and courts bill is going through today, um, or maybe not, um, will be hotly debated. Um, and that's got a new prominence in our kind of political landscape this week that perhaps it wouldn't have had if this new story hadn't happened and if the police's response to the um, to the protest hadn't happened in the way that it did. Um, and, and obviously it's there partly kind of to crack down on the kind of extinction, extinction rebellion type of protesting that was quite um, uh, overt and complicated but it's now having you know it's being scrutinized in a way that perhaps it wouldn't have been scrutinized if this new story hadn't been there um, I'm just thinking about kind of other things that we might we might miss as we're thinking about this particular news story and um, the government have released also um, thinking about kind of violence in a different kind of way and um, the inspection of their contingency asylum accommodation report um, so you can find that if you want to on the government website um, uh, Salvation Army um, have produced uh, a report about uh, Scottish, um, Scot- how Scottish local authorities have responded to homelessness in COVID times, and um, uh, and that's um, and that's very helpful, especially if you're in Scotland at the moment. Um, and similarly, um, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation has talked about in the upcoming Scottish elections that um, poverty is a key priority for people in how they're going to be voting. Um, and kind of looking kind of into the kind of roadmap into the new normal, um, we've got the, um, there is a, a wide ranging study um, that's been produced by uh, Renew, renewnormal.co.uk, um, which has got lots about um, learning and rebuilding from the pandemic. Uh, and particularly interesting is the research on um, public attitudes to various emerging policy issues. Um, and there seems to be a kind of a growing uh kind of sense that a cross-party uh, or cross-culture consensus that change is somehow needed um, which is quite interesting in that um, although I, I, I did look at I looked it up and I um, I was really struck the first thing I saw was this very kind of ser- what I would describe as a serial packet family as a kind of silhouettes on the background of this report where they've got this kind of um, image of a man and a woman and a, and a babe in arms and I was just was really struck that they kind of that was this kind of what we're aiming to in this new normal world and I thought Mm, okay well that's telling um so uh so that's me with my kind of uh suspicious face on I think um but we've so we've got this political scene that we're looking at we've got a scene of um of kind of really and for you kind of your work in violence and how that shapes you in in hearing and seeing the scene we've got um our bibles as well and um, we've got these readings this week um so uh as Spurgeon said and I we're both Baptists, aren't we? So um, I think it was Spurgeon who we said that you have your met- your newspaper in one hand and your Bible in the other. So um, our Bible is our Bible readings are Jeremiah thirty one, which um, has this passage in about the new covenant. Uh, we've got this um, Hebrews passage about high Jesus being high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and we've got a gospel passage from John twelve, which is um, Jesus being approached by some Greeks 
and then kind of going on to talk about seeds falling into the ground and his own prayer to God and the crowds various listening to that um, story. Um, I, I wonder if there's a particular passage or a particular theme, Helen, that's jumped out for you as you were looking at these, these this week. <clears throat> my first thought was, oh, my word, this doesn't this isn't political. <laughs> this is um, these three glorious, glorious texts. And I wouldn't ex overtly preach politically from these at all. Um, these are texts leading us into, um, you know, leading towards Holy Week and uh, and for engagement there. Um, and that's probably what I would do if I were preaching on them. But looking kind of with that, with the lens that, that I was applying to it, because I knew that I was going to be speaking here, there are a couple of things that I notice. Um, one of the things was um, around the idea of glory and self-sacrifice. So really interestingly, the Hebrews passage begins by saying, Christ did not glorify himself. And the John passage has Jesus saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you could almost say, well, hang on, we've got a contradiction here. What's going on? One says the Son was, was looking to be glorified, and one says the Son didn't look to be glorified. And of course, we will probably all know that the idea of glory um, is, is carrying different connotations in these two texts. And, and for John, um, glory, when he speaks you know, about Jesus being glorified, it's always pointing, pointing towards the cross. And and so there's something just extraordinary about that idea of, of what glory looks like. And in that, in that John passage, we've got this, as you say, this is a language of the seed falling and, and the, this theme of, of self-sacrifice, of laying down one's life. And just picking up, I suppose, on some of the ways that I have seen scripture misused or simply misunderstood. Um, I think it's worth bearing in mind how this theme can be misheard or can be used to harm. Um, so it's it's worth reflecting. I mean, this is glorious. Both of these, those these New Testament texts are speaking about about the humanity of the Son, the suffering of the Son, um, his his absolute. Um, uh, engagement in participation in human grief and suffering and and loss um to what extent is that is the self-sacrifice of the son a particular thing because of what he's going to go on to do at the cross to what extent does that form a paradigm for christian discipleship and to what extent does the power dynamic of the person who is making that point matter so I absolutely think that it is a core theme of Christian discipleship that we um, lay down our lives, that we um, sacrifice ourselves, that we prefer others. When that claim is made by someone who is more powerful towards someone who is less powerful, um, then there is a real danger in that. And so I suppose I see the, this isn't where I focus my preaching, but as I, as I was preaching it, I think I would be aware of who is in the congregation, hopefully, if I know my congregation well, and most people, I guess, are preaching congregations they know well, and I'd be aware of how that might be heard, or I'd be sensitive to the possibility of it being misheard or misapplied. Um, the good news in this text is Jesus's identification with those who lament and who rage and who grieve and, and who struggle, um, and that's beautiful. We just need to be aware of, um, of, of its dangers um, when misapplied.
I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I, I was like, is this my own kind of moment of like not use needing to not use the the pulpit as my place for therapy, you know, but kind of thinking actually, you know, I've I I know I internalize those narratives in a way that's particularly self-destructive at times. And you have to really, you know, I'm picking those from my own soul, thinking, well, who else has this been true for? That actually we kind of talk to kind of, you know, self-sacrifice and and suffering is the way to some form of kind of um glory and goodness and holiness and that's what it looks like and I think or has that been misconstrued and and I'm sure you know we we can hear that very differently and I think there is really careful stuff around yeah both around people's experience of different experiences of life and how that may make them suffer or not um and um and particularly about kind of how uh there's some a lot going on with mental health at the moment in the pandemic particularly kind of pressuring people in certain ways and I think you know really actually wanting to say to people you know if you if you need to get help you know that this is important and, and actually I was really struck by um yeah the same thing that you were about Jesus is just full experience of, of of his own trouble and and I um I my my um I've, I've got uh, a translation that says my soul is tr- my soul is troubled is the kind of polite way it puts it um and I kind of did a bit of digging around a commentary and it says you know in turmoil and this is a word that's like agitation horror convulsion and shock of spirit and I was like gosh that's like my soul is troubled is like the most understatedly British way of translating it. Oh, just, you know, just a bit, you know, it's not great right now. Um, and I think maybe, but maybe that's how actually a lot of us are answering questions and kind of thinking, you know, maybe this is a, a pastoral as well as a political conversation that um, a lot of people kind of coming at the moment with kind of a sense of, yeah, fine. When actually that fine is, is really a kind of surface level answer for a whole iceberg of kind of stuff that's sitting underneath there. Um, I was struck by Beasley Murray's uh, comment that he says we um, we shouldn't put a question mark after the um, when Jesus says save me from this hour we should put a pause because this is the prayer that Jesus really wants to pray and therefore he does um, and that that's what makes his obedience therefore so much more remarkable so the kind of the idea that Jesus um, in the, this turmoil of spirit prays this really very honest prayer about that to God and I um I found that that quite hope giving actually that kind of idea that um yeah it's it's not um we've kind of yeah not it's, it's this not this idea that kind of like kind of you know oh you just need to accept the suffering and just kind of get on with it and this is kind of part of being holy but actually no you shout about it to God and you bring your chakra spirit and you know there's a place for that in church and there's a place for that in uh, your relationship with God and holiness like I do wonder um I wonder how much I've heard that preached hope it really actually I think um it's powerful stuff mm-hmm um you um you mentioned a bit about how these can these texts can be abused and I know you've written a bit about um about this in in terms of domestic violence so I just wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that quickly Helen yeah so um I've I've been researching I've been reading and listening to um women actually who have been and I realize the domestic violence and domestic abuse isn't simply a male or female issue. Um, I've been listening to women who have had the Bible weaponized against them in their homes by their husbands. Um, and it's really, really troubling. Um, it's And, and I, what I wanted to do was find out the ways in which um, the Bible is used uh, in this or abused in this way. And one of the things I was really struck by was that I could not, I could have predicted some of them, 
you know, there were certain texts that would seem very naturally to lend themselves to to an abuser's agenda. Uh, you know, I think we we can read them much better than that, much more faithfully than that. But the certain ones that might immediately jump out in our minds. But there are there are so many others that never crossed my mind that they could be twisted in that way. Um, and so the something about the cynical um, and kind of demonically creative way actually that scripture ways that scripture is is manipulated and and twisted and so I've written a book kind of trying to explicitly address those texts and show how they do not um, condemn you to um, continuing to sit in an experience of, of domestic abuse or coercive control. It's called the bible doesn't tell me so is that right? Yeah, that's the yeah. yeah. So if if somebody listening and wanted to go and go and get that, that's uh, that's to, the title to look up. Um, and it's addressed explicitly to to people who are experiencing that, um, and then secondarily to those who want to be their allies and to church leaders. In other words, it's it's aimed to be very accessible. It's not a kind of deep scholarly tome. Mm. It's it's one to have on your bookshelf for the for the moment that you might need to produce it as a pastor rather. Um, having read it hopefully yourself um but but to to be able to know how to yeah that that that's that really important thank you um i'm just um i'm struck what we, we brought that up because actually um uh there is the motif in jeremiah of god as husband um and um and i um i i was looking at that and kind of <laughs> just got a big ring around it in my nose <laughs> and it's always the way I come to this like oh, of course it's that way around God is idolized in some way as a man <laughs> and then the you know, kind of the, the the unfaithful community is female <laughs> just for me the kind of the gender politics of that just thinking ah oh, you know and I know I know it's a different time and I I know that but it just it feels like having to do the work for me coming to a text like that each time um yeah yeah i think there's a real i've been doing some thinking recently about um about that metaphor uh, about the metaphor of the unfaithful woman um in the old testament and the metaphor of the prostitute in revelation and and so on and there's a real i mean there's far more than we can perhaps go into now but i think one of the things to um to bear in mind is the way that metaphors work which is that they are intended to work in one direction only they're not intended to work backwards. Now, they may pragmatically work backwards, but they're not intended to. So in other words, if if what the, the prophet is saying is God is like a husband, he's saying these elements of an ancient Near Eastern husband um, can map to God. We can see those elements of God in that. What you can't do or shouldn't do is read backwards from saying this is the, this is what God is like and he has particular prerogatives I would say um, and we cannot then map them as back and say this is therefore what a husband ought to be like and that's the real danger is when we start mapping divine characteristics and divine prerogatives backwards onto husbands I think. That's really helpful thank you yeah yeah um, I am um... I was also struck um, in the in the Jeremiah passage about this um, idiom that's used, a kind of from the least to the greatest as this kind of catch-all phrase. Um, and I was just really struck also by, because um, there's a kind of this idea that this is kind of universality to it, and that this universality also seems to be in John's gospel, because it says um, all people. Um, and that the kind of um, 
all the commentaries I, I've read have spent quite a lot of time saying to me, well, this isn't, universe. <laughs> isn't universalism. <laughs> it's definitely not universalism about both these texts. And I was just thinking that kind of my instinctive thing is to say, well, it sounds pretty universal. Actually. <laughs> There's something about this idea, this kind of gift of, 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 of what we've got in this new covenant that seems to be for for all, and um, and I was really um, so I, I quite enjoyed that in both of uh, in both of these. Um, well, yeah, that was a that's a really interesting theme that I I, I was picking up on as well from a slightly different angle because I was caught by this Melchizedek character um, who is so mysterious in both Old and New Testaments, and um, can start to think about again about what the writer to Hebrews is saying. Um, and of course, what what the writer of Hebrews is is doing is setting Jesus up as being ultimate, like a Levitical high priest, but ultimately far superior to Levitical high priest. But in fact, so superior that that metaphor breaks down, and then the writer appeals to Melchizedek, who is who is not not a Jew. You know, he's not he's not he's not in the Abrahamic line. He's someone that Abraham meets, and therefore isn't a isn't a descendant or, or an ancestor or anything else. Um, and so there is something here about universality, or at least at least about God's covenant and his blessings being for beyond um, the nation of Israel as well. And of course, we see that so clearly in John. We've got those going up to worship at the festival being Greeks at the beginning of our passage. And at the end, Jesus saying, I'll draw people to myself. And and I was so I was, yeah, I was thinking about that. And, and I love I love that theme. And for me, whenever I read Paul as one of the really strong themes that I see is what blows Paul's mind is that it's Jews and Greeks in the church together. That's the thing that makes him just his jaw drop. But I recently read a book um, by Willie, Willie Jennings called The Christian Imagination. Yes, <laughs> and he speaks about how, about how the Bible was used in the colonial project um, and how the how effectively the kind of minds, this is, I'm flattening a complex argument slightly, somewhat here, but how essentially um, the colonial project kind of positioned um, British, well, the British colonial project, because it positioned white British Christians as central to the gospel narrative, as central to the church, and then all those other people who aren't white British Christians, the, 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 the natives that they're colonizing, are people that might come into the church kind of by by deem, but, but by nature of kind of almost additional grace, you know, they, we kind of, we'll, we'll bring them in, you know. But but Jennings challenges those of us who are Gentiles to remember that we are grafted in. We are the ones who have been brought in by the extraordinary abundant grace of God. Um, we weren't automatically there. Um, and I think that's such an important thing to be reminded of, to position ourselves not at the centre. As, as the natural inheritors of the covenant, but as those who who have been brought in by that additional bounty of God, and I think we see we see the themes of that here again. I wouldn't preach this explicitly, but I might have it in my mind as I'm sort of expand exploring these ideas. I am. Um, I've 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 read that, and I've, I've just I've started reading. Um, it's just here actually. <laughs> uh, Post-traumatic public theology, and. Um, and and he's got a chapter in there as well about um, veterans coming back from war and how do we treat veterans and um, and and kind of looking at the kind of the PTSD of of what it is to be uh, in, in kind of 
yeah how, how, how do we manage how do we help people process both uh having experienced harm against themselves but also having perpetrated harm and it's um it's i really recommend it it's really just in fact the whole book is brilliant um so far because i think we're um it, trauma is, it, and as this book names in its its title, I think it's kind of a bit of a theme at the moment in kind of how we're looking at um, looking at the world and trying to compute COVID and trying to compute a lot of things that feel quite hard to understand in the news at the moment, and and kind of um, looking deeply and kind of um, at our own complicitness in racism and um, you know gender violence and everything that goes with all of those intersections of people's um you know able-bodiedness and other things and I um I think it's just been yeah kind of how do you rebuild and how how do we start some you know how do we get to somewhere that looks better and I I'm really struck that this Jeremiah passage actually is um is is part of this you know kind of looking to a kind of post-exilic place um and kind of you know um responding to these kind of cries of kind of terror and pain and grief and kind of saying I'm going to restore you and heal you and and what might that look like and it's this new covenant and um and often we kind of look at the old as kind of we'll just get rid of that and the new is the new shiny thing but actually the kind of off you know it's kind of actually the oldest part of this new thing that's being built that it's it's sort of uh, made permanent in a different kind of way and it's this idea that kind of um you know, the newness of the covenant is now that it's inside people's hearts rather than kind of simply in the law. Um, and yeah, I just I, I wonder if you could you could use that if you're kind of looking more broadly to kind of preaching a kind of how do we move? How do we move out? How do we move out of this? I think there's a lot in that passage that you could use to kind of start looking at rebuilding, um, rebuilding the the world into a, a new, a better new normal than the one that we had before. Um yeah, I um, I think I think we've touched on all three passages there, and um, I'm aware that our time is running out today. So, um, so we should probably um, start to think about kind of saying goodbye to each other, which is a real shame because I really uh, it's just such a helpful conversation. I think particularly the thing I'm going to take about the idea of metaphors only working in one direction. It's going to be something I'm really thinking about for a while. Um, that you've got. Um, brilliant your brilliant kind of insights into into this and I know the work you do is is hard but also um incredibly important um and I, yeah I just want to flag your um your, we flagged one of your books about domestic violence but I also want to flag your other book um and and just say that um there is it is a book about how to deal with the kind of scary bits of the old testament really isn't it um that yeah. kind of and and it's a really kind user's guide to how to how to do that kind of actually very practical book um so i would uh, really uh, recommend that people get that and have a look at that um especially if um you don't really know where to start in some of those conversations i would say um that's called god of violence yesterday god of love today is that right um with a question mark, with a question mark. like politics in the pulpit has a question mark <laughs> yeah well um thank you so much for coming on today um and sharing your wisdom and your reflections with us and um uh, thank you to everybody who's joined us to hear us and to think about these questions with us um and i hope all of your sermon preparations go really well um and um thank you for thinking about how or should uh we we preach politics in the pulpit this week so let's go into our our pulpits and our political lives this week with a blessing. 
May we be anointed with God's spirit as we bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, help people to see the world truthfully and let the oppressed go free. Amen. Amen.